Children's Church. And as they are going, you can join me in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This morning we are going to conclude this chapter in our study of the Gospel of John. And it has a very fitting context for where we have been in this study of John to this point. John chapter 4. I will begin reading verse 46 down through the end of the chapter. Therefore he... Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And he was now going down. His slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's begin with prayer, if you would. Father, thank you for being a God that ministers to our hearts. A God that knows our needs. You know our deficiencies. You know what, Father, we hunger for and what we need from you. And you are also a God that supplies those needs according to your will and your wisdom through the ministry of your spirit. And so we appeal to you that your spirit would minister to us in a way that is beyond our understanding, and yet, Father, sanctifies your church. We pray that you would equip us as servants and as vessels of honor, that we might proclaim Christ in a way that glorifies him and that magnifies the Father who is a Father of love to his people. We want to be a people of praise and thanksgiving. We want to be a people that identify with your Son, Christ, and look very much like him. So, Father, would you use me as a vessel that speaks your word this morning? And through your Spirit, would you take that written word and plant it deep within our hearts and minds such that we are transformed because we have gathered together this morning under the authority of your word. May you be praised because we gathered together this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Just this week, we have been having, at least in our office, multiple discussions about a well-known author and pastor who has abandoned his marriage vows, rejected his faith in the gospel, and he seemingly is attempting to apologize to the world for the moral purity of God's word. In our modern times, this has not been all that uncommon from liberal pastors or theological leaders, but it's somewhat more rare among those pastors and church leaders that have been outspoken in their ministry when it comes to sound biblical teaching. And we tend to expect that those who are most grounded in the authority of Scripture, God's word, and so communicate that word so well in love for Christ and passionately lead others in faith with Christ, 
it's a little beyond us to think that they can actually truly abandon the faith. Several articles that Pastor Christian gave to me to read on this uh, pastor that has abandoned his faith um, use this particular scripture that I want to start off this morning with from Hebrews chapter 3. So I've put that in your notes this morning because it is truly going to set the pace for where we have to be in this passage in John chapter 4. And I want you to go to Hebrews 3 rather than just hear me read it because it allows you to see the preceding verses and the context of this verse as well as the following verse and where this will naturally take us. But listen carefully. This is a warning to the church and a rather serious one. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There are several realities in regard to gospel faith that come from this text, and I want to highlight three that have much to do with where we're going in John chapter 4. The first reality here is that in the eyes of the living God, to not believe is evil. To not believe in the Son of God, to not believe in His Son, is wicked. It is evil to not believe. In the mindset of our day, it is okay to believe whatever you want. In fact, I think it is encouraged. You believe in this God, or you believe in this religion, or you don't believe in any religion at all. That's okay. Unless you believe in the one true living God who excludes all other religions of worship. This verse acknowledges only one true living God, and the rest are nothing more than dead idols, the imagination of man's mind. The God of heaven and creation is living, and please note, he requires that all have faith in his Son. To disbelieve is evil. The second reality or the second implication that comes from this text is that God will deal with unbelievers. This verse, remember, is a warning. And in context, if you would just glance at the previous verses, you will see quickly what the author of Hebrews is getting at as he describes God's wrath coming against unbelieving people of Israel's past history, where the hearts of men were hardened against God, hardened in unbelief. He then follows that passage describing Israel's history of faithlessness by saying, take care, brethren, that none of you follow in their ways. Faithlessness is a damnable offense to God, and he will respond in his just, in his righteous, and his perfect anger. A third reality that comes from this verse, and this will take us really into the heart of our study this morning, this should be sobering to us, and it's that any one of us can end up with such an evil, unbelieving heart. I want you to note the connection between unbelief and falling away. Now, the falling away description here is largely those who have apostatized the faith. But as we go back and look at the description 
that the author of Hebrew gives us of those Israelites. Remember, they were a fickle people that were holding on to the practices of Judaism while they were bringing in idolatry from the pagan nations, mixing the two and coming up with a brew that was offensive to God, arousing his anger. And the reality is, even as true believers, we can fall away to some extent. We can fall away for a season. We're going to fall away probably today in some way as we sin against the living God. What is the cause of this falling away? It is unbelief. It's a fickle, fragile faith. And you and I, even as true believers, can have moments of disbelief. The author is going to encourage us in this. Because as desperate as that sounds, look at how he follows in verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called a day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Every time we are taken off track by sin, there is a hardness of our hearts. There is a moment, a temporary moment, if you will, of unbelief. And the remedy here is the corporation of the church, isn't it? One another. We need each other. Regular fellowship is essential to us. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is guard your faith. Watch out for it. Be careful with it. Be diligent with it. Do not take it for granted. Don't think, well, 12 years old, I gave my heart to Christ and I believed in Him and I believed ever since. And then our life doesn't necessarily show that. We haven't been diligent to take care of our faith in those circumstances. The encouragement of the Hebrews writer is that faith is a fragile thing. And we need to nourish it and take care of it by encouraging each other. This is a theme that will come up again in chapter 10. Do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together, but what? Encourage each other to love and good deeds. And even more so as we see the day of judgment approaching. The point that we need to understand from this is that we must not take our faith for granted. We walk by faith. But it's a faith that has to be cared for and strengthened if it's going to stand into eternity. Don't think for one moment, oh, I believe Jesus, and therefore I will forever believe in Jesus. That kind of arrogance will likely land us in trouble. We believe in the doctrine of eternal security, which says that once saved, we are always saved. We can never lose that salvation. God is the one that holds us in his hand, and nobody can take us from the hand of God. Paul writes to the church in Rome, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet we read here that a heart of unbelief can come upon any one of us, and we've got to be careful to keep our faith under the constant encouragement of other Christians, other believers. There is a mystery to our faith in all of this. And I believe that when we arrive in our heavenly home, and if we're allowed to see our history here on earth, it will become very apparent that our faith was preserved because other believers were brought into our life and they encouraged us and kept us on track and kept us walking by faith 
as we've been called to. This is not to say that when we are saved, we can ever lose that saving faith. But true believers can fall away if but for a season. True believers can defect from the calling of God's word over their lives. And even true believers can find dead idols to dominate the worship of their lives. We tend to love golden calves. In the final words of this fourth chapter, the Apostle John gives to us an example of the challenge that Jesus faced in Galilee in preaching the gospel ministry. And yet it also reveals the success that he had in bringing salvation to this territory in spite of the challenge. In our previous study, John brought to mind those who witnessed the divine power of Christ in causing miracles. They saw his power. And yet Jesus says of them in the land of Galilee, they did not honor him as the one who was sent by God to be the Savior of the world. The Samaritans, by contrast, striking contrast, they saw Jesus, yet without any miracle display, and they believed in Christ. The Galileans were another matter. They had, they had either seen the, the miracles of Christ themselves, or they've heard about the miracles of Christ. And yet, they did not honor him as they should have. John points out in the previous passage that many of these Galileans witnessed the miracles done in Jerusalem during the feast. But what they saw was little more than a curiosity for them. They saw the drama of it. They saw the spectacular. And they were enamored by that. They wanted to see more. It was to them like a carnival act. But they did not see the Savior. Did they... They did not see the God behind those miracles. John then leads us into this story of a second miracle that Jesus performed when he came into Galilee. The first being the wedding at Cana back in chapter 2 where the water was turned into wine. In verse 46, Jesus and his disciples now return to Cana of Galilee after leaving the land of the Samaritans. And we note that verse 46 begins with, Therefore highlighting that we're going to continue to see the difficulty that gospel preaching faced in Galilee. The Galileans, remember, received Jesus, but largely for what they could gain from him, rather than to believe in him for who he is. And this theme continues into the final section of chapter 4 with one exception. The Galilean in this story comes to believe in Jesus Christ. And in this account, we learn something of the human side of faith. John chapter 3 explained to us the side of faith that is worked out in sinners by the Holy Spirit. Remember, if any are to see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. And then Jesus describes how that spirit of his will come and work in a very mysterious way, moving like the wind in an unseen way, to bring faith about in those that would see the kingdom of God. It is that aspect of faith that is mysterious to us, and it's fully in the hands of God. It is the work of faith that must first take place on any who will truly come under God's saving grace. No sinner will believe savingly until the Holy Spirit has raised the dead soul to life again, causing spiritual rebirth. If any are to be truly saved, God must move first. 
as Jesus taught Nicodemus. And this act of God is not fully understood by the one being saved because the Spirit moves by his own terms, like the wind. There is a great mystery to this work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about this faith of ours. At the same time, and this just kind of compounds the mystery, at the same time that faith is worked in us by the Holy Spirit, there is a human aspect to faith. The sinner must believe. They must respond in submission to the truth about Jesus Christ. They must understand the truth, have knowledge of the truth, and stand in agreement receiving that truth, accepting it as truth. Jesus made this very clear in speaking to the Samaritan woman in the very next chapter, after the chapter on regeneration. And it's discussion with the Samaritan woman that God is seeking worshipers who must worship from out within them. Worship from the Spirit and according to the truth of God. In other words, there must be that Spirit inner man response in faith to Christ and who He is. The Spirit of the person has got to respond correctly to the call of God and with the right truthful understanding of who Christ is and what the Gospel accomplished. The inner man must be in cooperation then with the Spirit of God and this cooperation must be in accord with the revealed truth of God. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, for any to be truly saved, the sinner must respond with belief in the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. What is required in faith is that a person must hear the truth and believe the truth from within them. There must be that human response of faith even though the Word of God tells us at the same time it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is working this faith within us. This is a mystery, is it not? There's a lot we do not know, even in regard to the simple response of faith. We are incapable of believing gospel truth in the deadness of our sins, such that without the Spirit of God bringing about new life, we're going to continue in darkness. And yet when new birth does come, Our spiritual eyes are opened and we know our sin and we hunger for eternal life. We hear the gospel and we believe. We put our faith in that truth. As I study the passage before us, I believe that what we witness here at the end of chapter 4 is the impossibility of faith if it was left up to men. We see the silent work of the Holy Spirit producing faith where it could otherwise not have occurred. John does not mention the Spirit here because he's already told us in chapter 3, this is how the Spirit works in creating faith. Now we see a perfect example of the difficulty of faith, the impossibility of faith occurring if left up to men. But when there is that silent moving of the Spirit, what we witness here is genuine faith that is blossoming and growing, a demonstration, an example of faith coming to life. What our text shows us is a faith that is awakened, and so we see faith grow, and finally we see faith anchored in the one whom God has sent to be the Savior of the world. This is how we're going to approach this text this morning. And you can see the movement of the Spirit in working faith in this royal official. But it begins very unsure, very unstable, and without a foundation. We notice in verse 46 through 48 that this faith that this man has is very unsure. 
because it has no foundation in truth. Everybody has faith. Every human being has faith in themselves, in religion, in false gods, in pleasure, in sin, whatever. This man has come to Jesus with a faith that is unsure. And our story begins as Jesus arrives in Cana of Galilee, having left the Samaritan revival in Sychar. John emphasizes that Cana is where Jesus turned the water into wine in what John referred to as the beginning of signs for Jesus. And John ends this story in verse 54 by telling us that what Jesus did for this royal official was now his second sign, referring to the Lord's Galilean miracles. We know Jesus did miracles in Judea, but this is now the second of the signs and wonders that Jesus performed in Galilee. And the very fact that this story is sandwiched between these two Galilean miracles is supposed to tell us something. John is hinting at something. Cana, water to wine. Now this man, the second miracle has taken place. What is the connection? Well, there probably are many, and we're not going to take time to look at all but one. All but one. If you go back to chapter 2 and 11, following the turning of water into wine, what happened with the disciples? It says they believed. Faith was produced. Signs and wonders were seen by the disciples of Christ, and they believed. Now in the second miracle in Galilee, in Cana. As Jesus returns to Galilee, another miracle takes place and what follows? Faith follows. This man believed, and not just this man, but his household. John tells us of a royal official whose son was sick and dying. We can sympathize with this man on this very point. The human emotions are involved here. This man is from Capernaum. He's a notable official. He has a position in government. Many scholars believe he's connected with Herod Antipas, who was kind of the king over that territory, the Galilean territory. This man was likely wealthy, and we know that because he has servants, as we note there in verse 51. We're not told that this official was either Jew or Gentile, but realistically, he could have been either one. This official individual, got word that Jesus had returned into Galilee, having left Judea. That in itself is fairly amazing, given there was no internet, there were no cell phones, but word had traveled fast that this man that had done miracles is now in the Galilean territory. This official is from Galilee. He's heard that Jesus has returned to Cana. He's in Capernaum, a few miles away. He is naturally drawn to this miracle worker because he needs something like this. He's desperate. His son is dying. This royal official exhibited little more knowledge about Jesus Christ than just that. We're not told that he came to Jesus and fell down and worshipped Jesus as if he understood Jesus to be divine in some way. We're not told that this man had any knowledge about Jesus' lineage or heritage, or the Old Testament prophecies that connected him with the, with the Messiah of God. Unlike the Samaritans, he does not appear at this point to understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world, or the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All that is on this man's mind 
is the life and death condition of his son back in Capernaum. The expression that this official uses of his child in verse 49 is a term that speaks of his fondness or his compassion for his son. He's feeling desperate, knowing that his son is coming to the point of death, as it says in verse 47. His son is dying. And he's anxious. He has nowhere to turn. You can't rush him to the hospital and see the hospital or the doctor save him here. There's nothing like that. And when the official finds Jesus in Cana, he comes to Jesus and it says he persistently pleads with him to come to the aid of his son. The word that John uses for imploring Christ means that he was persistently begging, appealing. He wasn't going to let it go. He'd heard rumors about this man, Jesus. He does amazing signs and wonders. Maybe he can come and fix my son. And I think we can sympathize with that. We read in verse 47, this man believed that Jesus could heal his son. He believed that much. He had that much faith. But several authors have pointed out there is a weakness in this man's faith in Jesus. First, he thought that Jesus must be present at his son's side. If he was going to effect a miracle, you've got to come to Capernaum and do your kind of magic or your potions or whatever you need to do. You've got to come and do this. Little did he know that he's talking to the sovereign God who spoke the world into existence. And by his word, he could speak that son well again. He did not know or believe that. Second, it appears that he felt Jesus was limited to heal sickness. Come before my child dies. Because once he dies, it's too late. There's no bringing him back. So his faith is limited in what Jesus can do. Certainly this man can't bring somebody back from the dead. He might heal a flu or two. Rub a little ointment on his chest and make him well. Whatever you do, come do it for my son. But do it before he dies. Because then it's too late. You can see a weakness in this faith. But Jesus points out another defect in the faith of this needy man. In fact, Jesus says this is a defect throughout all of Galilee. Notice what it says in verse 48. Jesus said to him, Unless you people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. That's what we call racial profiling today. You people. Jesus is one of those people. He himself is a Galilean. So he knows what his people are like. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. In other words, it's got to be proved to men that God is God. You need to prove it to me. Such a declaration by Christ highlights the priority of his ministry. He's not speaking of the people's inability to believe in his power to perform signs and miracles. They came to him to see that power. He's speaking about their inability to believe in who he is as the one working those signs. Your ability to see me as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And it's been pointed out that both these expressions, signs and wonders, both refer to miracles, the miracles of Christ, but each one represents a different viewpoint, and I think we can clearly see that. A sign points to the divine person of God in Christ. It should fix our vision away from our limits as human beings and see the power of God in Christ himself. That's what a sign does. It signals. 
The term wonder expresses the amazement of us that look on. And we see that which we cannot explain. Signs and wonders are not bad. Christ used them. He had a purpose for them. He did them for that purpose. The problem is not the signs and wonders. It's man's unbelief in Jesus, who he is, the one working those signs and wonders. There's nothing wrong with man's amazement at the miracles that Christ performed. And they should, we should see those signs pointing us to the deity of Jesus Christ. It is very common today to hear the secular community reject the idea that Jesus performed miracles. Because to embrace him as a true miracle worker would force men to consider why he had this power, that he is God. It's easier to simply dismiss the miracles so that we don't have to take Jesus seriously at God. This is the mindset of the world around us. Sadly, as I read about this apostate pastor, that's what I saw in him. Mark my words, the sin of that man will emerge quickly because God is limiting him from doing what his lusts want. And he will come out with his sin. And he cannot argue from Scripture that God speaks against those sins. So what are you going to do in this predicament? You've got to get rid of God. Get rid of his word. It's no longer your authority. And as this apostate pastor said, I just feel free now. What does he mean? I'm free to pursue the lusts of my flesh that were offensive to God. What a shame. In Christ we are free. No longer under bondage to those things. And such a man would return like a dog to its vomit to that kind of bondage. In context, Jesus has come from Samaria where many believed in him because he spoke the word of truth to them, not because they witnessed signs and wonders. The Samaritans didn't ask Jesus, prove to us that you are God. Jesus then moves into the Galilean territory where he knows he will not be honored for who he is. Yet here Jesus is in Galilee. This is where he goes. He preaches to this people he knows will not honor him. He preaches to a people that he knows will be stubborn in their unbelief. The very presence of Christ in Galilee at this moment is a testament to his love and his patience and his grace in enduring the resistance of sinful men. Why would he even go to a place like this? You people. It's because of his persistent love. He will go there and he will war against that disbelief because there's a work to be done for the Father's glory. In his first revelation of this defective faith, a man has come to Jesus, wanting a miracle. He believed Jesus could bring about this miracle. And Jesus points out to him that he's part of a people that wants to see the sensational. They want to be amazed. They want to be dazzled. And even this, this aching father, what does he want from Jesus? He wants the sensational. And again, we can identify with his passion. He just wants to see a son saved. But he wants the sensational. What Jesus wants from his people is that they witness his miracle power and they believe in who he is. And frankly, God demands it. God demands that we believe. 
and who his son is. It was not wrong for this man to ask Jesus to heal his son unless that is all that he wanted from Jesus. This is what Jesus communicates in his rebuke of this man and the people were all part of it. Jesus knew this man's heart, his deeper need. He knew the heart of the Galilean community. They want the spectacular, the amazing, the carnival act. Give us the show or we won't believe. Even from a troubled soul like this man who feels the pain of losing his son to sickness, to have nothing from Jesus but a miracle healing isn't enough. To see Jesus as nothing more than a physical physician for his child does not honor Jesus for who he is, nor does it do anything to benefit this man's soul. And the rebuke of Christ's words to this man has the consequence of doing more for the sick boy than healing his infection. It has the consequence of ministering a far greater healing to this boy's soul. This rebuke by Christ seems to hit its mark in this father's heart. As our next heading suggests, he came to Jesus as a father concerned for his dying son. The healing of his son was the spectacular he wanted from the Lord. And if that's all he wanted from Jesus, it would be a failure to believe in the Son of God as he deserves to be honored. But God was at work here. God is at work in this man moving in the heart. And this brings us to a faith that is unmuted. A faith that now hears in verse 49 through verse 52. I think all of us have probably seen those Charlie Brown specials or cartoons. Tell me, what is it you know about the adults in all those cartoons? You never hear their voice, do you? This is how I see this situation. There's a world out there that hears the gospel. They hear of God either in nature as we look around us or in the written word, or as a witness shares Christ. They hear the sound of it. But their spiritual ears are dead to what is being said. This man comes to Jesus with that kind of muted response. But then something happens here in the text. The rebuke that Jesus gives in response to the man's desperate appeal may appear at first glance to be somewhat cold-hearted, But we know that can't be the heart of Jesus. He's a man that is filled with compassion and love for sinners. His response to this man is actually a challenge to him out of love for him, out of love for his whole household. Jesus is correctly identifying the fickle nature of human heart to want the spectacular, want to be amazed. As I noted last week, even today there are those who want to see the miracles of God and those who preach in a way that draws the attention. You saw that in the, in the introduction this morning on that little news clip, didn't you? I don't think there's any one of us that haven't turned on the TV and watched, at least for a moment, those charlatan preachers. And honestly, about a couple of moments is all I can take of them. But what amazes me every time I see them is the vast crowds that have Bibles in their laps And they tolerate those unbiblical preachers. And don't you look with amazement? How can they sit there and listen with the word of God in their laps? The reason is found in the story that we have before us today. Men and women hunger for the amazing. Give me the spectacle. 
Give me the display. Give me the carnival act. It's what we want. It's what we hunger for. What is interesting from our text is that Jesus lumps this man in with those who clamor for just the drama of the miracle. And yet he is a man here with a sincere need. His son's dying. Yet Jesus lumps them all together. If all you want from me is to rescue your son, you haven't come for enough. You have a broken faith. But the rebuke by Jesus to this man is to look beyond the physical trauma of his son's failing health and see the one who stands before him as the Savior that can not only bring healing to the body, but more important, eternal healing to the soul. And the Lord's rebuke hits the mark, doesn't it? Because we see this amazing transition take place right before our eyes as we're reading the story. Verse 49, the royal official says to Jesus in response to his rebuke, almost ignoring the rebuke, Sir, come down before my child dies. His heart is still muted. Faith still doesn't see it. At least human faith doesn't. But then verse 40 or 50, we can see the Spirit of God is at work. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. And immediately following, what do we read? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. No more was there the... He's actually hearing the word of Christ and it says he believes something is blossoming here. The Spirit of God is at work. Jesus challenges the man to believe without seeing signs and wonders. And at first we only see a father's desperation as he pleads again in verse 49. Come, heal. Before he dies, you've got to do it quick. Revealing that his faith in Christ is limited to miracle healing. And if only Jesus personally came to his bedside, then something could happen. But there's a change taking place in this man. We don't know the exact words that he uses to implore Jesus to come to his home until verse 49, where he refers to Jesus as sir, or more accurately, Lord, from the Greek word kurios. Here is a nobleman of the king's court referring to Jesus now as a man of higher position than I. It's doubtful that he knew much more about Jesus Christ, but there was nonetheless a recognition that he stood in the presence of someone greater than himself. The change in this man's faith is more evident in verse 50. And it comes about because Jesus spoke. Go, your son lives. And at that moment, the Spirit of God is awakening something within this official. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he started off. We observe here that this man believed before he saw any sign or wonder. He didn't see the sign and wonder until the next day. But here he believes before he sees any sign of wonder and he believes because the word of God was spoken to him. He's come under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Our text also shows that the father did not return home that very day, which I find peculiar. Even though there is a traveling distance involved, I understand it's about 16 miles, but 25 miles by the roads available between Cana and Capernaum. Probably a seven-hour hike. Now, scholars debate why it is that this man delays his travel. Is John referring to the seventh hour of the day by Roman timekeeping? 
or Jewish timekeeping. If it's by Roman timekeeping, it would be 7 o'clock at night. We can understand how somebody might bivouac for the night and start the journey in the morning. Unless it's your own son that's dying. If it's Jewish timekeeping, it's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon when the miracle happened. Plenty of time to hit the trail and back home. In either case, just speaking as a father, understanding there are dangers traveling at night then, I would have been very anxious to get home. Not much would have kept me from it. It appears that the official did not hurry home because he trusted the word of God. Jesus had spoken to him and said, your son lives, and he believed. That much we do know. Your son lives, and he believed. As this man approaches Capernaum the next day, he is met by the servant, and it's very curious to note, he does not first call out to the servant, how is my son? Do you notice that? But rather, the servant reports to him. He's the first to speak, letting his master know, your son lives. The father doesn't want to know how his son is doing. How well is he? Is the fever broken? Is he eating now? Is he walking around? Is he out playing with his soccer ball? How well is he? That would be the natural response of a father whose son was dying. Instead, this father wants to know what was the hour that he got well. What is he seeking to know? Faith is looking to be confirmed. Have I believed correctly? And the response from the servant is the fever left the seventh hour of the previous day, the exact time Jesus declared to this official, your son lives. And he knew then Jesus was to be believed. Here is the Lord worthy of my faith, he says. And in verse 53 to 54, it shows us this man's faith blossoms and he gives testimony to his faith to his household. This is where I see that faith has been unlocked. It's been confirmed in his mind. And it's a faith that he is now prepared to proclaim to his household. John writes that when the time of healing was confirmed, the official knew the truth and he believed. And when he arrived back in Capernaum, this is where he first witnesses the sign and the wonder that belonged to Jesus Christ and he believes in him. He is amazed at the miracle power of Christ. But more than being a mere spectacle to this man, it leads this man to see Jesus for who he is. Three times you will notice that John writes, the son lives, the son lives, the son lives. Verse 50, 51 and verse 53. It is another prominent theme in John's gospel narrative. And it's woven into this story of the healing of the official son that Jesus is the giver of life. Remember how John started this gospel in chapter 1 and verse 4, telling us that in Jesus is life, and the life was the light of men. He's the author of life. He's the creator of life. He is the word that was with God in the beginning, because he is God. And everything exists because of him. If he is the author of life, he's not going to have any problem speaking the word, and that child will live. This is a theme by John in John chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, shows us that through faith in Christ, we can have eternal life 
because Jesus is the giver of life. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, he's referred to as the bread of life. And men are invited to come and partake of him by faith. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus came to the world to give us life and to give it more abundantly. In John chapter 11 and verse 25, we know the story well. Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. All who believe in him will live eternally. Is there not a theme in John's gospel? In Jesus is life. He's the giver of life. He's the author of life. And the very reason that John writes this gospel account is so that men and women may believe Jesus Christ to be the giver of life and that believing they might have life in his name. Is that not what we've read again and again? John 20, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. John has given us a beautiful example of the author of life here in this story of the royal official. Verse 453 tells us that when the time of healing was revealed to this father, he knew that Jesus Christ had brought his dying son to life. He then believed Jesus to be worthy of his faith. The official believed. And in the context of John's gospel, he wants us to see that faith, he wants to see this, the faith of this official come to life, that blossomed, it grew, it grew right before our eyes as we read this story. And we observe that this freshly established faith, like the Samaritan woman, is now being shared with this household. Because the whole household, the whole household, then believe in the Christ as well. This means that the father sat down with his son, his other children, his spouse, servants alike, and spoke to them the truth about Jesus Christ. And once again, this implies that the conversation between Jesus and this official was much fuller than John records here. There was some gospel conversation And he comes home and he realizes this man does have the power over life and death. He is to be believed. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. And he shares that testimony of Jesus with his household. And they are healed as well. In this way, the story of the Galilean official is quite like the Samaritan story. One witnessed a miracle and the other did not. But both shared their new faith in Christ and others believed as a result. What the story of the official shows us is that though Galilee was known to be a place where Jesus was not honored for who he is, a place that wanted to see the spectacle of miracle without recognizing the person of those miracles. Nonetheless, Jesus Christ preached gospel truth in this hardened territory and God caused saving faith in many. You have to see that this is truly amazing grace. This is the grace of God at work, going to a territory that entirely does not deserve to hear new life preached. And many are saved because of it. Communion Sunday is a day of special worship for the believer. It's a time when we are reminded of the sacrifice of Christ that he willingly made for our souls that he, through Christ, has granted us life in his name. 
And therefore, in preparation for our worship around the Lord's table, it is appropriate that we end our study with notes of praise to God. And I'm not talking about just a moment where in the quietness of our heart we say, oh, praise God for this or that. But it's the idea of living in worship, praising God. Tomorrow we're going to worship Him. The next day we're going to praise Him. And we're going to continue doing so. And from our passage this morning, I hope we have together seen, first and foremost, we are to praise, we are to worship God for the work of faith. Praise for God's work of faith in me and in you. That He was willing to work in us despite our unbelief. With both the Samaritan woman and the Galilean official, we're to see a picture of our unbelief and the God who works saving faith within us. Second, we are to live in worship, praising for God's persistent pursuit of us. This is a time when we gather around the bread and the cup and we give praise to God for persisting, going after me and pursuing me. Though we were all once indifferent to him. The very fact that Jesus entered Galilee to minister to that people, you people, as he said, knowing their lack of honor for him is evidence of this persistent pursuit of sinners. Do you not praise God for chasing you down and doing this work of faith? And third, our worship of him should find us praising God for abundant life. Abundant life. We experience that life in the here and now. But unlike those false TV preachers that we often hear about, it doesn't afford to us health or wealth necessarily at times. It gives us something far richer. The joy and security of knowing we are in right fellowship with God. Our sins have been atoned for and there is eternal life and glory awaiting for me. Awaiting me. We do not know we need this life until we see ourselves spiritually dead to God. We do not know that we can have eternal life until we know Jesus to be the author of life, that in Him we can know life more abundantly and for all of eternity. These are things should, that should be found in our praise this morning as we gather around the bread and the cup together. Father in heaven, prepare now our hearts as we worship you around this memorial this tribute to your son's sacrifice and the deepness and the richness of your redeeming love for sinners. Please work this in our hearts so that what you find in response to you is a faith that worships, a faith that praises, a faith that believes and acknowledges all that you are, all that your son is, and all that your spirit has accomplished by your good pleasure. In Christ we pray this. Amen.